book of Revelation begins with these words in chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. (coughs) This book was given to us, we're the servants of God, so that we would know what God is doing, so that we would know what the end is going to be, that that we would know what his his final actions are going to be um, in the judgment of the wicked and the redemption of the elect, the redemption of the redeemed. Um, we've, already, we've also seen that judgment is not some, something that's simply glossed over. It's dealt with in pretty significant detail. Um, the judgment chapters, I would call them in, in the book of Revelation, run from chapter 6 to chapter 18. That, that doesn't include the final judgment, which happens in uh, 20, but um, that's actually just really a few verses. From chapter 6 to chapter 18, you have the systematic, detailed outpouring of the wrath of God on the face of the earth. Um, if all it described was the wrath of God falling on the face of the earth, I think I would be tempted to uh, to simply schedule a 40 or 50 minute span of time and just read it one time. Just read it out loud one time and be done. Um, it's hard. A couple of people said this week, it's, it's kind of a downer. And it is. This is, this is hard stuff. Uh, those, of, those of you who attend One Hope, you're getting 40 minutes at a time once a week. I'm getting hours of it every week. And, and it gets old. It gets old. But these chapters, 6 through 18, are not just about God pouring out wrath on the world. These chapters are explaining what the spiritual world is like and how the spiritual world intersects with creation. These chapters explain what sin is like and what rebellion is like and, and what our sin is like and what God has done in, in showing us grace and mercy. Um, you know, using, using uh, Linda as an example at the mission, if, if, if the director called her tomorrow and said, come back, as an expression of mercy, come back, that's a genuine expression of mercy. But she hasn't done anything to the mission that deserves death. What we see in the book of Revelation is that our sin deserves everything that God pours out on the earth and then eternal hell. So when we receive the mercy of God, the grace of God through Christ, it's an enormity of grace and mercy that we, we don't really fully understand unless we see his judgment poured out. By the way, some people have said, uh, I've heard a couple of people say, you, you need to give me some kind of a motivation in Scripture. Well, here's a motivation. There's no better motivation for evangelism than Revelation 6 through 18 because of the enormity of the judgment of God toward the wicked. As we come to chapter 12, this is an interesting thing. Uh, if, you, if you write down on a sheet of paper 6 through 18, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 12 is the middle number. 
of that. So this chapter literally is the center of, of the judgment that's taking place. And this is the chapter that explains in the clearest detail why judgment is taking place. And with this chapter, uh, we see, we're going to see the devil clearly portrayed. And at the end of the chapter, I'll just kind of jump ahead for a second. At the end of chapter 12, it says, And he stood on the sand of the sea, and it's speaking of the dragon, it's speaking of Satan. And the very first verse of chapter 13 is, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. This is the Antichrist. So chapter 12 describes what God is doing in all of these chapters, and it also sets up the Antichrist for that last three-and-a-half-year period of time to devastate the earth. There are three major figures in the book, and and what I want to do is read through the chapter, not in the book, in the chapter. Uh, What I want to do is read through the chapter, and then I want to talk specifically about three verses. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. (coughs) Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God And the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water out like a river Uh, water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So there's, there's three major figures here. We have 
the woman. Uh, the, the woman is not a literal woman. This is a vision. And so all of these stand for something unless there's a reason given uh, for them not to. I, I explained this a couple of weeks ago, but just to hit it again. Most of the time when you come to Scripture, I just flipped to Acts chapter 2, uh, Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We take that literally. We take it literally unless the text gives us a reason to take it figuratively. In the book of Revelation, because of the nature of the vision, we take it figuratively unless we're given a reason to take it literally. When I say take it figuratively, I don't mean that it's a story or a mythology that has no meaning. The figures have something real behind them, right? So the woman is not a literal woman. She is a great sign, it says in verse 1. Given that she brings the male child into the world, and the male child is going to rule the world with uh, the nations with a rod of iron, which makes him the savior... She's Israel. She's not Mary. She's not the church. She is Israel, specifically elect Israel. We see that she's clothed with the sun and has the moon under her feet. Those are Old Testament pictures of permanence and stability and unshakableness. She is crowned with a a, a crown of 12 stars. (coughs) The stars... Uh, are either referring to the tribes of Israel or perhaps the apostles. There's some aspect of completion there. The word crown here is uh, is the Greek word stephanos. It's the name we, we get Stephen from. A stephanos is actually a wreath. It's the wreath that would have been given to an athlete who wins. Uh, those, those marathoners who ran 26 miles, some of them dying as they crossed the finish line, they were, they were running, but they weren't necessarily in shape. What they won was a crown of, 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 uh, of, of laurel leaves. That, that's what you get. Here's your laurel leaves. Tomorrow they're already starting to fade and turn brown and curl up. That's what you get. That's what she has. It's not a symbol of power. It's a symbol of victory. The child is obviously Christ. That's the focus. He rules all the nations with a rod of iron. Uh, He is caught up to God and to his throne following his crucifixion and resurrection. The woman flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. So she is cared for during the 1260 days. And we see that again in verse 14 at the second half of the tribulation. Because when Satan is cast to earth, he comes down in tremendous wrath. So... Third, then the dragon is not a literal dragon. He's called the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He is the one who is thrown down to earth because of his spiritual rebellion. And in in fury and hatred, seeks to destroy all that God loves. He seeks to destroy the woman, Israel. He pursues her incessantly. He seeks to pursue, or he seeks to destroy Christ. He's waiting there as she's ready to give birth, so that as soon as she gives birth, um, he can destroy this child. And of course, we know that Herod ordered the murder of infant boys in and around Bethlehem when Jesus was probably not newborn, probably closer to six months or a year. Um, 
And Jesus only survived that because Joseph was warned in a dream to take Jesus and Mary and get out of town, go to Egypt, and then told to come back when Herod died. And Satan has been seeking to destroy the church the whole time, the whole time that the church has existed. The dragon has uh, seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems, which makes for a, a really freaky picture. People have tried to draw these things, and it's kind of hard to figure out which head would have the extra horns and how all of that goes. Uh, it's a vision. It's not a literal picture. It's a vision. Being a vision, the heads uh, speak of kingly authority of kingdoms. The horns speak of power. And the crown, this is a diadem. This is a metal king's crown now, not the victor's crown. It's a picture of ruling power and authority. Now, two things about this that I find to be really interesting. Um, one is that he has more horns than he does heads. Horns speak of power. Heads speak of ruling authority. Satan is always pursuing more power than he actually has. The other thing is that you have a kingdom here which is divided. Ten heads, ten king, or seven heads, seven kingdoms. It's not a single kingdom. Jesus said a kingdom divided can't stand. This is why Satan's kingdom can never stand. It's because it is, by its nature, a divided kingdom. So he's unable, unable to destroy Israel, unable to destroy Christ, even though he tried, unable to destroy the church in spite of 2,000 years of trying. He's failed up to now. He is going to, to continue to fail. Now, there's no question that the enemy seeks to infect the church with false doctrines and false believers. The Reformation, one of the mottos of the Reformation was semper referendum, always reforming, always going back. Because as a, as a church or a denomination exists, as, as it comes into being, it comes into being with great purity and great passion and uh, devotion to the word and to prayer. And over time, that puts on weight, right? Like, like we all get older and we all put on weight and we kind of get sloppy. And not Elliot, but, you know, he works for a living. We all, we all just kind of put on, that, put on that weight. We get sloppy. We get complacent. And, uh, and the Lord uses the devil in surgical ways to benefit his church by raising up persecution. Because I tell you one thing, if you want to find out who the unbelievers are, who are false in their confession of faith, just subject the church to great suffering. As soon as there's suffering, as soon as there's a price to pay, the unbelievers are gone. They're here for the benefits. They're here for the goodies. They're here for the cookies. They're not here to hang with the family of God through tough times. And so the church constantly goes through this, this process. The church itself, not the organization, not a congregation, the church itself has never been harmed by Satan. He can't. We're preserved in Christ. And so it's a futile effort. We see that God intended to bring his son through his nation Israel and did. We see that elect Israel was opposed by Satan but preserved by God. We see that Christ was pursued by Satan but preserved by, by God. We see that the elect church is pursued by Satan uh, who are preserved by God. We see that Satan continues to oppose and will continue to oppose until he is stopped. He will not stop. He must be stopped. So that's, that's those three figures, the woman and the child and the dragon. Now, there is Michael. There are other things that are said. There's the river. There's just a huge amount here that I'm not going to take time to go into because of the assurances that we receive. 
in verses 10, 11, and 12. They are worth spending the next 15 or 20 minutes on. We're given four assurances. The first assurance is the assurance of God's victory. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven, saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So God is victorious over Satan by the salvation and power and kingdom of God and the authority of Christ. He's victorious through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And he achieves that victory by saving the wicked. There's nothing that Satan can do to God. That's just like silly to even contemplate. There's nothing that Satan can do to the holy angels. We see that when Michael and his angels fight against the dragon, the Lord allows there to be, uh, allows a fight to go on when all, when all God has to do is say, enough and it'd be over. He allows the fight to go on, and we're not told why he allows the fight to go on. Perhaps it's uh, simply to show the exalted nature of his holy angels. I don't know. But God can simply say, done, enough, and it'd be over. Satan would be gone. So um, why, why defeat him through the cross? Well, it's because Satan's victory, if there's a victory there for him, is over human beings. By dragging us into sin, by persuading us to sin, by bringing us into a place where we rebel against God, and God, because of his justice and his holiness, has to destroy us. It's kind of a double-edged whammy. He not only destroys the people of God, he gets God who loves those people to be the one who has to do the destroying. It didn't work. God has revealed his salvation and power and kingdom and the authority of the Lord Jesus. And in doing that, he's cast down the accuser of the brethren, the one who accuses us, Constantly before God. Now, let me just say this. I, I, I think that he is still accusing us before God. If, I'm, if, if what we read here works out within the chronology, and chronology is odd in prophecy, <clears throat> then these accusations are going to be made until we reach this three-and-a-half-year point where Satan is, is cast out. But there's always the possibility that he's been cast out of heaven now. And that what we're dealing with now is an increase of the wrath of God. It just seems like he is still there, still the accuser. John presents him that way. I want to paraphrase Romans 8, 31 to 34 for you. Because of the nature of the accusation, we need to understand the greatness of our God. So here's my paraphrase. God is for us. So who cares who's against us? God was willing to give his own son for us. So nothing else is going to be withheld from us. God himself has declared us righteous. And so no one can overturn that verdict. Christ Jesus died for us and was raised for us and is praying for us nonstop. So seriously, who can condemn us? No one. Not even Satan in all of his anger and all of his wrath can overturn or cancel out 
what God has done. He has been defeated by the blood of Christ. He's been defeated by the resurrection. He has been defeated by the intercession of the Son of God, who is constantly interceding for us. The second assurance that we have is in verse 11. We are assured that we conquer, that we will conquer. And they conquered him, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. The means of our victory defines the battle. The means of our victory defines the nature of the battle. If the, uh, I was talking to a guy about fishing a couple of days ago, and uh, he's old enough, he's done enough fishing in his life that he's not interested in catching anymore. So when he buys lures, he cuts the hooks off the lures because a fish will swallow the lure and try and hang on to the lures. You pull them to the boat. When they see the boat, they spit it out. You don't hurt the fish. You're still catching. You're still bringing them in. It's like, okay. Well, the means of the battle or the means of the victory define the battle. His victory is a loose victory. There's no hook there. And so the battle is a non-lethal battle. It's a non-deadly battle. It's not like the bunny we saw. We saw a video of a little girl with a little bunny and she takes the bunny outside and she puts the bunny in the grass and it goes hoppity 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 hop. Makes it about 12 hoppity hops and a hawk comes down and, and the mom says something like, well, you just never know. It's like very calm response. The means, of the, the means of the victory define the battle. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb of God. Why did Jesus shed his blood? To forgive our sins. We conquer by the word of our testimony. This is important. I hear people say, we conquer by our testimony. The Bible doesn't say that. It says we conquer by the word of our testimony. What's the word of our testimony? It's the gospel. It's not a personal description of what God did for me although he does things for me. But Satan isn't impressed with that. What stops Satan in his tracks is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the promise of God to send his holy son to save unholy sinners. And that just shuts him up. Satan's got no response to that. And we conquer by loving our lives not unto death. By, I'm sorry, by not loving our lives for they loved not their lives even under death. They didn't love their lives. You ever look at something all of a sudden it makes no sense? What, it, what, it, what, what, this, what it's saying is they didn't love their lives so much that it didn't even matter if they died. They weren't going to struggle to preserve their lives. So what's the battle? The battle is not for our comfort. The battle is not for our health. It's not for our prosperity. It's not for relational contentment. The battle is for our souls. The battle is for eternal life. The battle is for the preservation of our spirits. Satan is the accuser who wants to destroy what God loves, just as he sought to destroy Adam and Eve, just as he sought to destroy the Lord. He is the enemy of our souls. He is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour he doesn't seek our physical discomfort unless that brings us to a point of cursing God. He doesn't seek to break up marriages unless by breaking up the marriage he can bring about rebellion toward God. 
Because what he is ultimately seeking is for God to cast us out. It's a vain attempt on his part. We don't overcome him by holy living and religious devotion. We don't overcome him by having good, good intentions. We overcome him by calling on the blood of Jesus Christ. That's my satisfaction. There's my answer. When Satan says to me, you're a sinner, I point to the cross of Christ. Actually, this is exactly what I do. You get that kind of shame and guilt that really seems to have a, an enemy behind it. There's my own. I do my own self-loathing just fine, but there's that kind that comes from the devil. When the devil says you've got no right to call yourself a Christian, I say, you're right. What's your point? When he says, you don't live a holy life, I say, you're right. What's your point? You're, you're right about all that stuff. I'm not claiming any of those things as my victory. My victory is because Jesus died for me and rose from the dead. We overcome Satan by the word of our testimony, by the gospel, what the gospel has done for us in bringing us life, granting us the assurance. We conquer Satan by loving Jesus Christ ultimately more than life ourselves. They love, they love not their lives even unto death. And it struck me that this is a picture of, of carrying our cross, of taking up our cross. Jesus says in Luke 9, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would, lose, would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Taking up our cross is not seeking suffering for the sake of suffering. And I hear that. I hear people say, I've got to take up my cross. I have to suffer. This could be really fun, but now I gotta, I've got to suffer. Taking up our cross is not about suffering. Taking up our cross is about loving Jesus more than the cross. It's about loving Jesus more than our own death. Jesus' suffering was not about suffering. Jesus' suffering was about his love for us. So Hebrews 12 says, he endured the cross for the sake of the joy that was set before him. It doesn't say he endured the cross because he really liked suffering. It says he endured the cross for the sake of the joy set before him. And we have so many pictures of this. Uh, when, when we moved here almost 16 years ago, I pulled Linda away from friends and family. She suffered. It was hard for her. Most, most of you know me. Most of you know that I'm not an extrovert. Most of you know that I don't have a dozen friends I'm hanging around and palling with. And so moving from one place to another didn't have that kind of an effect on me. But it had a huge effect on her. She loved me so much she accepted that suffering. Well, a mom who is in labor. we got a mom who's going to be in labor You gotta, you gotta ask yourself. I, uh, see, this is why men don't get pregnant. Because after the first one, men would go, "No." <laughs> and I know that Sarah suffers from morning sickness at times. Why would they go through that again and again and again? It's not because she likes morning sickness or likes labor pain. It's because of the joy set before them. They love the idea of that child. They love that child, not the idea. They love that child more than they love their own comfort. 
Well, we love Jesus more than we love our own life and our own comfort. If you think about it, suffering itself is just meaningless. It's just pointless. Billions are suffering on the, the earth today who are going to get no benefit from it because their faith is not in Christ. It's not the suffering. It's the one that you love. Let me put it this way. Did Jesus let the cross stand between himself and you? And the answer is no. When he was faced with it, he didn't say, I love Justin, but not that much. <laughs> and, you know, he, he legitimately could have said that. And what he says to us is, I want you to take up your cross daily and follow me. I want you to look at your life and say, I love Jesus more than any of this. I want you to look at the good stuff, and I want you to look at the money, and I want you to look at the, the pleasure and the house and the enjoyment, and enjoy those things, but I still want you to say, I love my Savior more than that. And I want you to look at the suffering that you endure and say, but I love my Savior more than I fear that suffering. First assurance is that God has overcome Satan. The second assurance is that we overcome Satan by Jesus' blood, by the gospel that we have been given and by the love he has given us for him. Third is not going to take that long. We are assured that heaven rejoices over this victory. Verse 12, the first part, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, <coughs> Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Heaven exploded with joy when Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus says in, in, in uh, Luke chapter 15, as he is... Uh, sharing a couple of preliminary parables before the parable of the prodigal son. He says, There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who do not need repentance. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. See, what this, what this means is heaven rejoices when we conquer Satan through the blood of the Lamb and our confidence in the gospel. Heaven rejoices when when we confess our sin and we repent. I really want to emphasize this. Mm -hmm. When a sinner repents, the holy angels don't go, well, that's about time, and, and put their focus back on the really good Christians. When a sinner repents, heaven bursts out into a song of praise and glory to God. You know why? because it's not you repenting, because God grants repentance, because God grants softness, because God draws, because Jesus died, because Jesus rose again, because it's him. It's his work being fulfilled in a human being. Which, I don't, I don't mean to be immature about this, but it's like every time that happens, every time that happens, every being in heaven, including God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, look at Satan and go, yeah. Because <laughs> Satan says, I'm going to wreck your your world. I'm going to wreck your creation. And God says, no, you won't. Not, not one bit. Fourth, we're assured that Satan's destruction is sure, is sealed. Second part of verse 12 says, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And I could, I could probably talk for an hour or two on the devil has come down in great wrath. But the focus here isn't on the devil and it's not on the wrath. It's, be, it's the devil knowing that his time is short. Um, I don't think he knows that now. 
Jesus says that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. In Isaiah 14, there is a, a fascinating statement where uh, a prophetic statement about the king of Tyre suddenly shifts and Satan becomes the focus. And in those verses, 12 through 14, the Lord says through Isaiah, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You would think that when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, that Satan would have said, well, obviously that's my end. But I don't think that he knows that. I think one of the key characteristics of deceivers is that they usually deceive themselves. And I think he thinks he can win. I really think he thinks he can win. Otherwise, the Bible says that the, the, rulers in the, the rulers of the age would not have put Jesus to death if they would have known what God was doing. Well, it, what God was doing is here. Satan quotes the Bible all the time, but he doesn't know it. He doesn't understand it. He just quotes it. He uses it as a weapon, but not as a weapon that he understands. And so Satan continues to fight today because he thinks that he can still win. But we see the time in verse 7 when Michael and his angels fighting against the devil defeat him and he is thrown down. And when he is thrown down, I think at that moment, he knows at long last. I don't know when when the creation of the universe, when Genesis 1-1 happened. I don't know if it was 10 or 20 or 30,000 years ago. I think it's a short time. I don't think it's millions and billions of years. I think it's a short time. I don't know if the angels were created right before that and if the angels are 30,000 years old or if the creation of the angels was millions of our years ago. I don't know. I don't know. I do know that if you'd lived for 30,000 years and had the expectation that nothing was going to change and were given three and a half years, that would be kind of comparable to living uh, 30 years in our time and then finding out you have three and a half days. That doesn't seem like a long time. And that knowledge that his end is coming, that it's right there and he can't escape it, causes a burst of furious rage to come from the devil that's never been seen. He's always thought he had time. He's always thought that he could just kind of strategically ebb and flow. That's why we see him standing on the, the, the sand of the sea in the last verse of chapter 12. And in the first verse of, of chapter 13, the, uh, the beast rises out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems. Similar, not, quite, not exactly like the devil, but similar to the devil, as he calls the Antichrist into being, and as he unleashes the Antichrist on the world. Satan's fury is not going to be manifested primarily through wars and cancer and suffering. It's going to be manifested through a false savior. And he's going to gain the ear of the world. The Antichrist will. He'll have a false prophet that performs miracles that deceives people and they'll worship the Antichrist. 
So the outcome of these assurances is that God continues to protect his people. He's defeated the devil. He's granted means for us to defeat the devil. And and because of the nature of our weapons, being the blood and resurrection of Christ, the gospel itself, and the love God gives him, he's assured that we will be victors. Because there are already things that are in his hands. The Lord's pouring out his grace in a constant stream to us. He pours out faith and infuses us with faith nonstop. On the night that he was arrested, Lord Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus doesn't say to Peter, Satan has desired to have you, but I won't let him. He says, Satan has desired to have you, but I've prayed for you. And Jesus is so confident in the outcome of his prayer that he gives Peter an assignment for when it's all done. Because Jesus gets what he asks for. That's the book of Job in a nutshell, by the way. Satan wants you, but I'm preserving you. And he's going to fail. Why won't Peter's faith fail? Not because of his dedication or devotion. It's not because of his commitment. It's not because of his perfect life or his sincerity or good intentions. Peter's faith won't fail because Jesus has prayed for him. That sets it. That's done. That's done. Peter had to go through, if I can put it this way, Peter had to go through the hell of denying and the aftermath of denying the Lord and the shame of the denying. He had to go through the the disappointment he had in himself and the self-loathing that he, he experienced. But Jesus had already told him before it happened. I'm, you're going to do this, but I've prayed for you. And so after you're restored, in the midst of all of that, do you think Peter is saying, well, the restoration's coming? No, of course not. He's sick of himself. If he'd had the courage of Judas, Peter would have killed himself. I think he was that despairing. But Jesus prayed for him. Well, Hebrews 7 says that Jesus is interceding for us now. That he is able to save to the uttermost his people, those who come to him. Because he is interceding for them always. He is praying you to heaven right now. He is praying for you right now. Why are we victorious? Because Jesus is praying for us. We we don't see the decrees of God. So we, we pray for Dennis's success. We pray for Nancy's healing. We pray for the healing of, of other people. We pray for healthy babies. You can pray that my, my elbow, I tweak my elbow, saving the life of my granddaughter from falling off the couch. I should have just let her fall. So somehow I kind of sprain my elbow. We have to cast all of those things at his feet. We have to turn all of those things over to him and understand that he has prayed for us. That because he has prayed, we're secure. The enemy has been destroyed. His doom is sure. Our victory is guaranteed. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you for the mercy that you've shown us in giving us the Savior. We thank you that you grant faith and life, and you grant an unending infusion of faith and life. 
Nobody in their right mind wants to die. But Lord, we can be in our right mind and have such faith faith in you and love for you that death is not fearsome. We look for the eternal victory to be realized and to be manifested. And until we see that and experience it, we have your promise and your promise is sure. And we know, Jesus, that because you are praying for us, because you are interceding for us always, that we don't need to fear anything that the devil brings against us. You will preserve us. And we give you praise in Jesus' holy name. Amen.